whilst it would be nice to say, yeah, we're over it, I think the reality is we're far from that. We should use this opportunity, the sea change, to prepare for the next step. Because, you know, this is not going to be the last pandemic. Unfortunately, since COVID subsided, we've reverted in some ways back to the bad old ways. This is the National Health Executive Podcast, bringing you views, insight and conversation from leaders across the health sector. Presented by Louis Morris. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Anada Kim, who is the National Clinical Director for Infection, Antimicrobial Resistance and Deterioration at NHS England. What prompted this chat for me was that a lot of my friends and family, for them, the COVID pandemic is over. You know, there's no social distancing. Masks haven't been a thing for ages, it seems like. But as I'm sure you can attest to, you know, backlogs are still unrelenting, staff pressure is still persisting. Is the pandemic really over for you and will it ever be over? It's a good question. So whilst technically it might be over in terms of the numbers, certainly from a COVID perspective, we're very much still in the maelstrom of the effects of it, particularly the backlog and trying to play catch up. And it's not just catch up on the elective work in terms of surgery operations or appointments, but it's also a a kind of backlog of preventative and chronic disease management that I don't think we were optimally able to provide during the lockdown and those two years of, of not doing the face-to-face type preventative work in chronic conditions like diabetes are going to have some implications in the medium and long term that we are only scratching the surface on. From a, a system perspective, we're still reeling from that perspective, not least of which because of the engine room of our system is the staffing. And the, the, the basically the trauma involved in looking after patients with COVID the workload and the unrelenting nature of the activity that's only been rising really um, day by day or year by year, Um, the impacts of long COVID within our staff as well, uh, because our staff have been patients as as well from from a a multitude of different angles. The mental health demands and anxiety, fatigue, stress, these are are all kind of elements of, of the impact of COVID that Whilst it would be nice to say, yeah, we're over it, I think the reality is we're, we're far from that. We are a, a wounded beast in some ways. And what we need to do is support and nurture the system, our patients, and very importantly, our staff, if we're going to have any chances of, of full recovery. That was going to be my next question, you know, speaking about all the mental health impacts and all the work that the workforce has had to do. And that's not even touching on the patients, as you mentioned there. Because of the backlog, their conditions could have deteriorated. They're getting worse and worse. And that just, I guess, sort of kicks the can down the road a bit later. So with that in mind, will we ever come out of this pandemic? Is it anytime soon? Is there any, like an ETA for you? Uh, yeah, I, I wish there was. Um, I, I think it's one of those things that you, we've almost built on the stress level. And this is a continual, a continual pile of stress that's building and building across healthcare and, and continues it's unrelenting and the amount we can do or do and have to do and would like to do for patients and for conditions and for the system as a whole only increases exponentially year on year so i don't think we're ever going to get over it in in those terms i think what we need to do is find ways of adapting to the challenge and adapting to the increased work and the different ways of working as quickly as we possibly can we've got to be nimble, we've got to be agile, both in terms of how we practice healthcare and we respond and deliver that care to patients, but also the way we lead. We cannot be wedded to 20 or 30 year old models of of how healthcare should be led, financed or indeed um, monitored. We we have to move with the times and, and COVID 
showed us a way forward, a way of adapting. And we had to adapt with such great speed. We should use this opportunity, the sea change, to prepare for the next step. Because, you know, this is not going to be the last pandemic, unfortunately. And, you know, what how we define pandemic is really interesting, isn't it, in terms of a definitional perspective. There is a very fixed definition from a World Health Organization perspective. But what we mean by a pandemic, I, I guess, from the medical side compared to what we reality we face in reality in terms of society is a different thing. Mm. We 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 are at the beck and call of surges of activity of a variety of different conditions at different times of year. And a good example is respiratory infections that we we saw not limited to COVID, but actually the wider gamut of other viral infections, bacterial infections that commonly occur and actually occurred to a much higher number than than COVID itself um, and and continues to. So the question, I suppose, is um, not whether we are going to get over it, but how we're going to adapt to this new scenario, this new system, um, building on the learning from COVID and and, and also the influence that has on what the wider society elements, because, you you know, the, the bit that's over from a healthcare perspective might be a reduction in COVID numbers. It's always going to be kind of bubbling along in the background, both both in terms of nosocomial hospital acquired infections, but there is a risk. But the impact that COVID has has had on society is, is even more profound. We've a living, breathing example of why society needs to take care of itself better in the way it treats itself and its members, how we treat our fellow man or women and children, how we respect their health and how we, we utilise our intelligence so that, you know, if you've got a cough or a cold, for instance, you put a mask on if you have to go out. If you don't have to go out, you stay in because you don't want to infect everyone. And these are the societal lessons we really need to take to our hearts. We need to be a caring society because healthcare and the NHS on its own is not going to solve health's problems. We need partnership with patients and the general public and, and to empower them properly. You did mention there something I do want to touch upon more mentioned adapting for more pandemics what needs to happen to go of this so from your perspective to actually see change is it from the top down or is it more like a partnership with patients you mentioned there is it like a devolution of power giving ICSs more autonomy to do what they want for their specific area or is it a combination of all of the above no it's, it's a good question and, and ICSs have had to hit the ground running all 42 of them I think that devolvement of power is a good forward step. However, there are certain elements that they will require national support for because they are common themes. And clearly from an efficiency perspective, it's better to to work at a national scale in some in some cases. For instance, the way we, we manage COVID, the way we manage reporting um, in my own sphere, the way we manage acutely ill patients, for instance, is something that is not unique to an ICB, but is actually problem we face in every single acute health situation. So to divest that to a region or an ICB to lead on and and educate, train, govern and measure is probably not the right way. So we have to support ICBs and ICSs in innovating and also leading. But we, we need a wider sort of national picture in my head to bring together a community of practice across all the ICBs to ensure we learn from each other. And we build a common momentum and a common standardization and thematic approach to common problems. Um, the success of, of communities of practice, I don't think, can be understated. These are relatively cheap initiatives through which we can really move healthcare's dial in terms of quality and safety at scale. 
And it, it is always helpful when you have a network so that people can talk to other ICBs, for instance, to get tips, hints, you know, forewarning about barriers, enablers, and ensure that you hit the ground running as, as best you can in your individual ICB. And those sorts of relationships, in my head, are the things we need to nurture. So from a, a national leadership perspective, I think we need to be encouraging that, but also supporting. And we we have to, in today's times, think, figure out what needs to be done from a national perspective that has the most impact across each ICB and what can be divested to the regions and ICBs. And getting that right is going to take a few months of kind of toing and froing. It's funny that you mentioned that cause part of my job as a journalist is to sort of write about best practice in the regions and seeing what certain NHS mm. trusts are doing. And as a national clinical director at NHS England, how easy is it for an NHS trust in Newcastle to find out about what maybe a health board in Wales is doing? How easy is that dissemination of information for best practice? I think it's really hard. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And, you know, that, that for me is the responsibility of a national programme and a national team. And, you know, we have amazing pockets of incredible clinical teams and administrative leadership that is trying things that are really out there. And what we need to be much better is bringing together these stories and these ideas and sharing them in a shared, safe space so that colleagues can learn from them. It shouldn't be up to them reading a medical journal or a, a health-related journal to understand what this what these elements are. It should be the national programme that pulls these together and, and, and packages them in a way that is digestible and easy for people to understand, read, and, and hopefully gives them a hook to find out more regarding. And, you know, we need to work with journalism to ensure that we achieve that. Everyone's incredibly busy and the bandwidth is limited. So there are ways and means with which we can help each other, I think, going forward. If you had to give me like three tangible steps that need to be taken, I'm sure we come out of this smoothly, not that we are going to, but come out of this as smoothly as possible. What would you say those three are? Well, only limit it to three is tricky. Um, <laughs> as many uh, as you I want think... to be firm up. <laughs> okay. From a learning from lessons perspective, I think one of the really important things was, you know, getting over resistance to change because COVID forced us to work really quickly, collaboratively. There was no you know, time for egos here. We needed to work unbelievably quickly in both healthcare policy, but also in the development of drugs, vaccines, et cetera, treatments, pathways. All of that was absolutely critical. So that terminology of play nicely and play collaboratively and work as a team of teams type approach across NHS bodies has never been truer. And unfortunately, since COVID has subsided, we've reverted in some ways back to the bad old ways of going back and hunkering back in our silos, thereby limiting the opportunity and speed for change and innovation. So we must firstly learn from COVID and modernise the way we approach leadership in healthcare and also the elements that, that we think are going to make the biggest difference. Secondly, I think patient partners and the general public as partners in healthcare, both from an empowerment perspective um, in terms of their knowledge of illnesses and disease, but their ability to self-monitor and self-treat and have responsibility for their health. Because when we have a limited budget and finite amount of resource within healthcare, if we don't engage patients and the general public properly, we will lose the opportunity, go down the route of being slightly inefficient and ineffective, I think. So the big sea change has to be engagement. Thirdly, the innovation of, I think, alternative models We've evolved to a very, I think, a, a kind of blood-brain barrier between 
community and hospitals. Um, and, you know, this this just doesn't work for patients anymore. Um, it may have worked 50 or 60 years ago, but it certainly doesn't work anymore now. And we need to be breaking down those barriers by expanding and extending the remit of integrated care at its whole. And ICSs should help that process. But we do need the imaginative thinking around that to ensure that we we work collaboratively to create roles and means of delivering healthcare that actually live and breathe that philosophy and, and use use the the expertise from the community and the hospital to the best ability. A good example being uh, assessment hubs and the provision of improved access to patients for face-to-face -face, um, review and management when they present with acute illness, thereby reducing the need to go to an emergency department for something that perhaps could and should be treated in the community, particularly in areas of deprivation. Um, and third, thirdly, linked to that, we need to be much cleverer about using the testing that we have seen flourish and develop within our great innovators from a science perspective and actually start embedding them again in community settings. Now, I work in a hospital, but the hospital is a finite box. Um, it really is. And although it, it takes on a lot of the workload, the question is where, where care can be best delivered. And part of these innovative models, including care in patients' own homes, like the virtual ward model, are really important going forward. We need a sea change to make sure that patients are treated in the right place, not the most convenient place for healthcare. Um, and then I suppose building on that, the, the explosion of digital tech and, and self-monitoring solutions through that do not need a break on them. We need to be knowledgeable and cognizant of what's going on and support their further innovation. So our partnership with industry is really important going forward. We need to point the dial and point in the direction of travel in what, what appears to be the best direction for patients and the general public and encourage that. This is about partnerships going forward. And um, I think without that, we are we are going to struggle. And then I guess finally, measurement is a, a piece that's really close to my heart. I don't think we do it as well as we could across healthcare systems in terms of actually understanding the quality of care we deliver, the safety of care we deliver um, in a way that we can benchmark against ourselves primarily, but also against like-minded other organisations or similar organisations. Because I think we need some sort of ruler if we're going to really establish whether we are genuinely on the right track and delivering the quality of care we need to be delivering. All of or, or a lot of our initiatives appear to be a, focused around avoiding work, reducing activity, avoiding an admission, avoiding an attendance, reducing general practice appointments, for instance. We also need, with 50% of our energy, to be focusing on the quality of care the safety of care, ensuring that outcomes for patients remain at the very fore of everything we do. I think that's probably what comes to the top, top of my head. Well, on that quality of care, you mentioned a few times about partnering with people, partnering with industry and partnering with patients. Something I've always found interesting is I think it was Sakia Starmer who mentioned in his, um, I think it was Labour's mission for, for the NHS, stuff like that. He wants to move to preventive care. And I've read a lot about you know, health creation and stuff like that. Is that more the future where you, as you say, putting more responsibility onto the patient and helping them understand their conditions more so they can police themselves? I think we definitely need to do more in the preventative sphere, but a lot of our initiatives are focused around discrete single conditions, uh, heart attacks, cardiovascular, diabetes, for instance, cancer care, um, old age care or dementia, mental health. And whilst these are really important, topic areas, the actual big thing we have not cured is mortality and the, the actual act of growing older. 
people will always deteriorate. They will always get sick. There is no cure for mortality. We have not figured out how to stop aging. So with that in mind, we also have to have part of our system that is not just about prevention, but is actually what you do and how you react when patients become ill and acutely ill, particularly, because that's what happens in life. So our preventative systems have to be good, but they have to be wedded, in my mind, to the acute care elements. They are not oil and water, because if you're existing within your chronic care bubble for four or five different multimorbid conditions, which is the average as one gets older, you're not really fitting the box of though that silo-based approach to condition management. You cross many boundaries. And actually what you need is a plan going forward of what the signs of illness are at the earlier stage and when you should seek help, when you should not seek help, and what you can do to monitor your condition yourself or your conditions yourself and then um, observe when you should seek help. And this is where the lessons of COVID come to the fore. Is the number one reason for an emergency admission to hospital in a deterioration is infection. Not just COVID, but usually a bacterial infection or a suspected viral infection. And when you think about the physiology and what happens with that and the symptoms, these are really easily things for, to train patients with and educate them with. And we, we do this with immunosuppressed patients, but the question is whether that education should go wider. And we use the opportunity of COVID to actually educate the population as a whole as to when they should and shouldn't seek help. What is self-limiting? What is not self-limiting? What requires treatment? What requires antibiotic or antimicrobial treatment and what does not? And the more we engage, the easier it becomes to deliver optimal healthcare to patients. So this, it, it, again, it reverts to partnership, I suppose, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and whilst prevention is, is a really important element, unfortunately, we cannot prevent everything. And, uh, you know, um, 100,000 hospital beds and, you know, the six or seven million emergency admissions per year to the NHS with deterioration as an emergency um, attest to that activity. Well, going back slightly to COVID and in infections and things like that, I think Bill Gates, who did that famous TED talk where he basically said in like 2014, we're not ready for the next pandemic or epidemic, maybe he said. And so my question is for you now, and I'm getting the feeling the answer is going to be no, but are we ready for the next pandemic, the, the next epidemic? Yeah, it's a, another Good question. So, from um, from a from a a kind of experiential perspective, we are more ready than we were, simply because we've had real frontline experience of what it's like to do, to lead, to develop in the in the eye of the storm. And you know, you can read textbooks and illustrated case histories, but you know, there's that famous saying in medicine: "Do one, oh, sorry, see one, um, do one, teach one." And um, it it really applies that. You know, that logic applies to actually going through the motions with a, with a pandemic and why we try and simulate certain um, scenarios as part of our general training. But it's not something you can really prepare for. So us having gone through it is, is probably the best experiential training of all, albeit unfortunately with um, a, hu a huge situation of lots of activity and, and unfortunately lots of death. So that experience element has prepared us in some ways physically for what is involved in a future pandemic. The second element is the structures around healthcare that I hope we've learned from. And, you know, for me, the pandemic has told us that we need more single room accommodation in hospitals. We cannot have nightingale type wards or bays of patients which can cross infect. 25% of our COVID hospital cases were nosocomial. 
And, you, you know, when you're dealing with that large number of, of COVID cases being nosocomial and infections from other patients to other patients, you start realising that actually our structures are not fit for purpose and that having these open bays, these open waiting areas in the community and also interfaces as well as the hospital are not suitable. We need more single rooms. We need better infection prevention and control investment from a physical structuring perspective. And we need pathways of care that adhere to that. And that in part is the way we triage patients so that you don't all go into a milieu of a single waiting room where the most immunocompromised person is going for a routine checkup next to a, a three-month-old who is coughing and sniffling, for instance. We need common sense separation of resources and appointments to reduce the risks posed to patients when they become ill. And um, again, the respiratory hubs are a good example of that by separating those with suspected infections from those who do not have suspected infection. It at least does, it, uh, we do our best to try and minimise that chance of transmission of infection to non-infected patients. Yeah, and this, I believe, is going to be my last question. And I apologise if it's a stupid one, but I really wanted to ask it. Does the NHS, does it deploy any sort of mechanisms in place to and predict what the next pandemic might be, what it could be? You know, I know there's things like bird flu and monkeypox, but do you have any understanding if of when and what the next pandemic might be? Um, not enough, in my opinion. So I, I think we we have a wonderful emergency preparedness team, but we are actually having regular meetings about that very topic because, you know, in my head, what I think we really need is is a dashboard of activity and predicted activity. So that, you know, that dashboard I alluded to earlier of looking at whole systems activity in terms of emergency admissions, deaths, intensive care admission, length of stay, readmissions, and outcomes for patients from a patient reported perspective, as well as um, those, those harder quantitative data. And then an element to that, which is around modeling. So we have wonderful COVID models that did a terrific job all throughout the pandemic of, of telling us what the data was likely to show in the next week or two based largely upon the emergency admissions activity for COVID from the preceding week. Um, we need to be cleverer than that. We need to be using other elements of, of what modelling might afford, things like wastewater, investigating the urine, for instance, or faecal remnants from the population, and then seeing the prevalence of certain infectious conditions within it. Using Google to see how many hits we're seeing for respiratory infection type or infection symptoms using 111 data, 999 data, and obviously primary care data to get some intelligence and using surveillance within the community to again see what is happening in this country before it happens to um, the, the, the national picture and, and big pandemics hit, because that early part of the curve is what you want to interrupt. And then lastly, we need that modelling to also come from countries we trust and that show us uh, or shine a light on what the activity is likely to be in in for us in in two or three months time and a good example of that is australia and its ability to predict what is going to happen for us from a flu perspective two or three months in advance so i think we've made good progress from a modeling perspective but there is much more work to be done here and this dashboard is something we need to create and have visibility i think on from an entirely national level and then have that trans transparency to be able to reduce it down on a local level um, and for it to be easily accessible. With that sort of information, we can then decide what we jump at and hopefully do it at an early enough point where we can make an impact. Because 
setting up an assessment hub, for instance, for respiratory infections four weeks after the peak of respiratory infections is not as useful as doing it four weeks before the peak hits. We we have to hit the ground running with our resources and our initiatives and intelligence is the way forward. And I'm afraid, Matt, I'm genuinely afraid that is pretty much all I've got time for. Before we do wrap up, got any final thoughts for the listeners on, on this type of topic, on AMR, on COVID and stuff like that? I mean, I've covered measurements. Access remains a big bugbear for me in terms of how we improve that, particularly face-to-face access, particularly in deprived areas. We've got report after report that demonstrates patients living in deprived areas do worse than patients in more affluent areas. And there's so many reasons for that, but a key reason is the access to community care. I'm not blaming primary care. It's it's really up against it. But what I think we do need to do is support those areas better. And that's where I think we need these integrated assessment hubs to really deliver that 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 crying need of same-day access. And by doing so, we would then separate chronic and preventative care from the acute episodic care. And I think that would be a marvellous thing to try and achieve this year. Um, and, and secondly, that to achieve that really demands the integration of systems and care in itself. So how can we build on the learning of what we have done and how can we share as a national community best practice? Alluding to what you said earlier, we are cognizant that there are areas that are really high flying that coordinate their care across regions really effectively and efficiently. We need to learn from the best. We need to put them into a digestible format and not enforce these down the throats of every single region, but show people the art of the possible. Because, you know, local adaptation and local need will mean each one is unique. And, you know, there won't be a cookie cutter's standard fit for all, but there are some great examples out there. So it's keep innovating and keep trying to improve the system and, and working at scale to share that knowledge. And that's it for this episode of the National Health Executive Podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the National Health Executive Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you receive every new edition.